This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade. It's always great to be saving money on that power bill, using technology wisely, and living a more sustainable life. In the studio with me, as always, Casey Boyce, my co-host from Decatur, Georgia. Casey? Good morning, Tim. Good to be with you. Yeah, we've got a lot of horsepower in the studio today. A a, a lot of brain power, Casey. Our IQ is doubled or tripled at least. I I mean, Casey, I have three degrees from the University of Georgia, but often say... I mean, what do you do with an English degree, right? What do you do? What do you do with a nonprofit organization degree with a PR degree? Well, do do? I, I would hope with the English degree you would talk gooder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm working on it. Uh, so <laughs> I still can't say nuclear quite right. But you know, Casey, we've talked about That's this graduate before. level at UGA, right? I, I had a speech impediment as a child. Uh, We've talked about this, Casey, and you apologized, uh, and you've forgotten now about the impediment that I had. And I did go to the lady in the counselor's office, the speech therapist, and worked on that because I could not say rabbit correctly. But enough about that. (laughs) Let's introduce our guest here today. Um, Let me start with Dr. David Gaddy, uh, the associate professor uh, in engineering and the senior fellow with the Center for International Trade and Security. Dr. Gaddy, welcome back to Energy Matters. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Casey. It's good to be back on Energy Matters. Great to have you here. Yeah, the last time you were here, I think you had just testified in front of the U.S. Congress, uh, an honor that I haven't haven't had, and we're, we're going to get into that in a minute. Well, you can't pronounce nuclear. You you can't testify before Congress, Tim. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe <laughs> that would really give me a hard time up there. And then a, a, a newbie to Athens, so to speak, Dr. Adam Orford uh, hails from Alaska, made his way to California, and he's kind of just trekked back across the country. He's the he's an assistant professor over at UGA Law and just finished up a renewable energy law and policy class. Dr. Orford, you've actually been on the show before in a remote interview we did in front of Strickland's after eating some sausage. That's right. It was delicious (laughs) sausage. And uh, great to see you, Commissioner Eccles. I think it's been about three days since the last time we spoke. Uh, Thank you very much for coming and speaking at my class. It was a wonderful talk. My students all raved about it. Uh, Very nice to meet everyone in the studio. Yeah, Casey, Dr. Orford began the lecture that I was speaking in by showing a picture of a a closed nuclear power plant in California. Tell us about that, Dr. Orford, and what you were trying to do with the students. So it was uh, the it's the Diablo Canyon plant, which is scheduled to be shut down in 2024, decommissioned. And what I was trying to explain and introduce them to was the idea of whether or not we should build more nuclear. Should we shut down the uh, the nuclear uh, facilities that we have? How do they work? And what are the the arguments around the role of nuclear generation, particularly in the renewable energy context? Is nuclear a renewable energy resource how should we think about it in the energy transition that's ongoing right now dr gaddy that that has been a debate uh, out there it's whether nuclear energy is officially renewable i mean we know that it's zero emissions there at the plant uh how do you how do you explain to people of uh, what nuclear energy is when it comes to whether it's just clean or just renewable or just green how, how, what do you say so i don't characterize it as renewable just to keep it from getting conflated with things like intermittency so i no, i it's in my in talking with students and teaching students it's we've got three categories we got fossil fuels we got nuclear and we got renewables and it's one of those three i understand a lot of that background to uh it being renewable that is uranium 238 and you absorb a neutron plutonium 239 breeder reactors is for the most part where it comes from and you can reprocess it for fast reactors but now nuclear is its own category it has its own uh, reliability base load characteristics and with the advanced nuclear coming on board here it's even better so no not renewables Casey. So, so tim 
I was giving you a hard time at the start of the show, but I, I must admit I'm a little slow. I'm getting the, the, the thrust. This is going to be the nuclear show, huh? You know, we've got some experts here that not only teach about it, uh, but they speak about it. They've got a, not, a lot of knowledge, and I, I think it would be uh, inappropriate for us not to dive into this uh, because this is, this is a type of energy, even though it's been languishing, so to speak, in the U.S. In China, they're building more than 25 reactors along the East Coast. I mean, there is a, there is a renaissance going on in nuclear energy. It just hasn't been in the United States. Right, Dr. Orford? Well, I think that's accurate. Um, when you look at, for example, what was happening at Glasgow, which is another thing that has happened recently, although... Sorry. This is the, the climate the summit, climate, right? Yeah, the, the climate Co- summit. COP26, the UN, UN climate conference. The role of nuclear energy in the ongoing question about how do we solve climate change is really uncertain, and it was not something that was highlighted there, but I think it's really necessary to talk about. As Dr. Gaddy said, it is a low-carbon uh, energy source, and that is that is why the, the kind of ongoing conversation about should it be built, should we have more of it, uh, is so relevant. The problem or the history is that the environmental movement particularly has been traditionally really against nuclear power uh, and has opposed the expansion or new construction of nuclear energy resources. And of course, there's also the concern about cost. So uh, we are interested in seeing what should the future be. Dr. Gaddy, when you testified before Congress, you spoke to both uh, Democratic members of Congress and Republicans. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking, uh, Dr. Orford mentioned the environmental movement kind of pushing back. Did you find bipartisan interest in nuclear energy, or is it one party or the other? No, there's bipartisan interest. I think, though, that in some states, you're going to find that there's no interest. And I, maybe Adam can talk a little bit more about this from California's perspective, but now, generally, if the conversation is in the lane of climate change and carbon reduction, no, nuclear is bipartisan. Um, but it's still going to come down to local local issues. As far Some folks are just against nuclear because it's nuclear, and their confidence is in renewable energy being the future, not only for the U.S., but for the world itself. Hey, if you're just joining us, I've got Dr. Adam Orford, who, from Alaska, Uh, taught at Cal Berkeley, now at UGA Law. Dr. David Gaddy, obviously you can tell he's from New York City (laughs) with his accent. No, just teasing. He's from the Deep South. Two states that really couldn't be more different. I mean, Dr. Orford, his comment about what people want. I mean, you lived, you know, you lived in California. You taught at Cal Berkeley. How true is that statement? Well, with respect to nuclear, I think it's right on the nose. The, The question of whether or not people want nuclear power in their state in their country, in their jurisdiction, drives whether or not they get built and whether or not the licenses get extended. And you see, particularly in California, but all over the world, frankly, in countries like Germany and Austria now in a lot of places, the the anti-nuclear movement is strong. The politics of uh, concern and some of it very legitimate concern over uh, the risks, the safety of nuclear energy generation and what are we going to do with nuclear waste? Casey, does it surprise you that a country as advanced as Germany, you know, the richest country you know, uh, in the EU, uh, with arguably the best engineers in the world, except for maybe the uh. University of Georgia, sorry, uh, <laughs> does it surprise you that they are so adamant against nuclear energy? It, it doesn't in some respects. So, I mean, the, Germany's got uh, rich reserves of coal. So I think, you know, culturally, there's, you know, nuclear is somewhat unfamiliar. I mean, it's not unfamiliar, right? They've had uh, nuclear reactors. But, um, you know, coal is very comfortable to the German people. Certainly after the Fukushima, there was concern um, among the, uh, the German population about could something like that happen here. What's been really interesting is kind of seeing what has happened since they shut down all their reactors, right? So, um, you know, one, they have increased their reliance on fossil fuels, so they've really struggled with meeting some of their their climate targets um, as part of the EU. And they've also been importing a lot of nuclear energy from France, which is like 70% nuclear, um, and has kind of become this powerhouse for uh, for at least uh, kind of central Europe uh, around electricity as, you know, the UK has struggled with some some challenges. Germany struggled with some challenges. Yeah, Dr. Gaddy, as you were speaking uh, to Congress, did did other states come up, other countries, other parts of the world in, in the questions that you got maybe 
officially or unofficially? So it's always going to be the Fukushima is going to be brought up. Interestingly, to the point, KC, about France, you know, this was back in 2019 when I testified. This was about the time or just after, maybe a year or two after, President Macron had announced that what he wanted to do in France was to dial back their nuclear dependency from in the 70s down to 50%. Uh, two weeks ago, not only did President Macron come out, and I think it was in the middle of COP26, not only did he say they aren't going to do that, but they're actually going to re-engage and start building out new nuclear reactors. So kudos to the guy politically for uh, correcting himself because eventually the engineers and people with calculators showed up in his uh, advisor, energy advisory meetings and said, we can't do this and meet carbon objectives without it. Yeah, just a minute left in this segment. Dr. Orford, France is a socialist country. How, how in the world have they kept everybody on board with something that's so controversial in a state like California? Well, I can't speak to France being a socialist country. I can say in California that the, uh, the problem of whether or not to close Diablo Canyon is becoming more and more present as they struggle with resource capacity adequacy. In other words, keeping the lights on. Uh, and taking a main baseload generator out of their resource mix, the nuclear power plant, uh, while trying to do that is a real challenge for them. When we come back, more discussion with our two uh, experts, uh, PhDs, University of Georgia, Dr. Uh, Orford has a, a law degree on top of that. Casey Boyce, me and Casey just uh, sitting here learning. So, hey, stick around. We'll be right back with another segment on Energy Matters. Energy Matters would like to thank GasSouth for its support of the show. GasSouth has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. GasSouth, the difference is good. GasSouth believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit. And the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. GasSouth. The difference is good. Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters, here with Jeff Pratt of Green Power EMC. Jeff, more and more EMCs are offering solar to their members, and you're seeing it grow like crazy across rural Georgia. Tim, you're right. Co-ops in Georgia are doing a great job of deploying solar across the state. In fact, they're leaders in the country with respect to engaging customers and deploying large-scale solar to benefit all their members. Hey, contact your EMC and ask them about their solar energy policy, or just Google Green Power EMC. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AMLAW 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, Tim Eccles back on Energy Matters with Casey Boyce, my co-host. We've got a lot of brain power in the studio. Casey, did you ever think about getting a PhD? No, I did not. And in fact, so I, I have a, a graduate business degree and I have a friend who I went to business school with and she was encouraged by her professors to get a PhD and she said, it is very different to get a PhD in business than it is to get an MBA. So uh, in some respects, I'm glad, but my brother is a PhD um, and I've got a lot of family members that are, are academics. So, you know, certainly nothing against that if that's your path. Um, although our, our guests here in the studio, both of whom hold PhDs are kind of shaking their heads going, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I tried, guys, I tried. I, I got accepted into the PhD program in journalism and started it. Had it had an assistantship, wound up getting at odds with a professor. There were only three of us in the class. I felt like I was going to get a C in the class, which would have been bad for my GPA. I dropped the class, taking me below 12 credit hours, kicking me out of my assistantship. And I, I made some quick 
kind of decisions about my program that wound up bumping it back to just another master's. So I actually had been trying to get a PhD in journalism. What's your PhD in, Dr. Gaddy? It's in ecology. Ecology. How mm-hmm. about you, Dr. Orford? Energy and resources. Yeah, and then your law degree, is that j- that's a JD, right? That's correct. And where did you get that from? At Columbia Law School. Columbia, and that's in New York. Correct. Right, so you've had the experience of living in Alaska, the Bay Area. Isn't that where Cal Berkeley is, the that's Bay correct. Area? Yeah, uh, the Bay. Bay Area. And then New York, now Georgia. I tell you, we've had, Casey, we've had some um, diverse uh, uh, guess before, but this right here, the Dr. Orford has lived in in areas that that's so different. Yeah, I, you know, it's I'm curious to hear your take on kind of these different areas because usually we'll have you know the Columbia and Stanford person, right? Someone who 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 knows the coast, but I mean, Alaska is just a whole different world, right? Absolutely. I grew up in southeast Alaska in a little town called Petersburg and later on in Juneau, the capital, uh, population 28,000, no roads out. I think that gives me a perspective on rural living and on a broader range of politics than perhaps you get exposed to at Berkeley, for example. Uh, I also lived in Arizona for four years. I went to Arizona State as an undergrad. I went there from Alaska because I needed the warmth. It had been a while since I'd actually seen the sun. Uh, so, so yeah, I've I've also been lucky to be able to see a kind of a wide range of different parts of the country, and I I, I think it helps me connect and teach and and uh, and. Yeah, bring as much experience to bear as I can on what I'm, what so, I'm doing. So coming here to Georgia, I mean, we, we certainly have you know large metro area with Atlanta. Maybe you include Athens if we're being generous as part of that metro area. But certainly, you know, a lot of really bright people, a lot of uh, great stuff happening here in Athens. Um, but, uh, you know, large rural swaths of the state as well. Kind of what's your perspective on Georgia as someone who didn't grow up here but has that experience in those different areas? Well, I'm, I'm certainly still learning the state, and I had no idea before I moved here how big and kind of extraordinary Atlanta is to start with. Just the, the, the amount of business and the economy in the state is really impressive. Obviously, politically, it also seems to be going into kind of a transitionary phase. find that to be very interesting. Uh, I'm still learning quite a bit about the state government and the local level government. What I have noticed particularly is that there is the very strong urban-rural divide in the mm-hmm. state. And for me, as an environmental lawyer, primarily or initially, it's really important to be able to reach out and understand what folks uh, are actually concerned about. Human health, their exposure to chemicals or whatever um, that might be uh, different as opposed to folks who live in a city, for example, and serve and speak to folks from both the rural and the urban background. Dr. Orford, uh, was it living in Alaska that really cost you to have an interest in ecology or an environment in the environment or is it one of the other places that you live when did that really take off i went to law school in order to become a tax lawyer that didn't work out i have my undergraduate degree in italian studies with a minor in music so of course uh, i got into the environment sort of fell back into it Uh, i was uh, i got the opportunity to be on the journal of environmental law at Columbia. And that came to mind because I remembered the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which happened when I was a young kid. It happened kind of right down the road in the neighborhood, so to speak, which means about 700 miles away from where I lived. Uh, But it was the kind of environment, the kind of place that I was used to seeing all the time. I saw it covered in oil, the devastating environmental impact. That was in the back of my mind as I got involved in uh, the issues for the first time. Dr. Gaddy, how did you get interested in ecology? Back in the 80s, when I was working in the private sector, I was working for an EMC down in southwest Georgia. And back then is about the time that environmental issues were coming to the fore on the power generation sector. And I went into working with a, a consulting firm, and they actually paid me, paid for my education to go back. They were looking for more in that space because it was emerging, it was evolving. I haven't had an engineering degree, so they really needed to bone up on some of this broader ecological impact, environmental impact stuff. So that's what they actually wanted me to go back and get my PhD in for the for the for the sake of the firm, and I did. But I did it while my wife and I were having three children. So that's not when you want to go back to school and get a PhD is having three You're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dr. Orford, my son uh, lived in Valdez. He was in the Coast Guard for three years wow. there, and I had a chance to go there and in, in the summer, so I didn't go in the winter. How impactful is it on 
the typical Alaskan mind of people. It seems like everybody hunted there. I mean, they were eating reindeer sausage and this and that. It seemed like the outdoors, being on the water, being on the snow, climbing a mountain, uh, being outside, hiking, camping. It seemed like the typical Alaskan is just outdoors way more than, say, the typical Georgian. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think you see that in the uh, the sort of focus on parks and outdoor recreational experience as a thing to go do in Alaska that maybe you don't have in Georgia as much of, although there's some great hiking here, which I've gone and done. Um, I think also that what you allude to with Valdez, that, that the, the economy, the state economy and the role of oil, particularly uh, since the 1970s and the construction of the pipeline, uh, has totally transformed the state. So you have a lot of very outdoorsy people, but also a lot of very pro-development, a lot of very pro-business uh, folks, particularly up in the Anchorage area and north of there, uh, together with mining and fishing and other sort of uh, what we would call extractive industry. Yeah, an- another question. I know that Alaskan residents receive uh, a payment. Um, from the oil, how how impactful is it on their energy philosophy and their outlook and attitude towards, say, oil and drilling? Is it, given that they are benefiting from it, planning on that money, using it as a down payment on a, a snowmobile, snow machine, boat, ski trip, whatever, how, how much of a psychological impact is receiving that payment? That is a great question. I expect it's a significant psychological impact. Although the permanent fund dividend, as it's called, doesn't cover the increased cost of living in Alaska by any means. Uh, Still, folks rely on it. It can be a very important part of the whole year's financial outlook. the argument about divestment more broadly as, you know, should we separate our uh, uh, state or federal government's financial well-being from our uh, oil industry's financial well-being, that argument is present and real in Alaska as well. Dr. Gaddy, I often say that people that live in the Augusta, Aiken area or anywhere within, say, 50 miles of there, it's the Silicon Valley of nuclear in the south with Vogel, Savannah, Riverside, Barnwell, Oconee, Summer, uh, all of all of this that essentially impacts practically everyone financially in some way. And I've often explained that's why even the staunchest Democrats that live in what I call the Silicon Valley of nuclear energy over there uh, are in favor of it because they are benefiting from it. How much of an impact do you think that that money has on the region over there? I think it's exactly as you characterized it. It's significant. And, and, and Tim, you can, you can actually extrapolate that out to any energy resource in a local community. And a perfect example right now is Joe Manchin out of West Virginia. When it really comes down to legislation and policy, it's going to come down to local pocketbooks, local communities, and local economies and what those impacts are going to be. I just left Wyoming. Of course, that's one of the hubs for fossil fuel in the country. These policy decisions, particularly when it comes to nuclear, really come down to what are the local economic impacts. You're right. Well, and of course, you know, we've had the conversation on the show a number of times of the economic impact of solar, right, uh, in in parts of Georgia that haven't seen much economic development. Certainly the, the nuclear plants and, and really any uh, energy plant provides a lot of jobs, a lot of investment in the community. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, kind of what is that impact across the state of Georgia and how does that relate to the kind of energy mix that we have? You know, I, I know you're concerned, Tim, about economic development generally i don't know whether you know that kind of local impact plays into the decisions that you and your fellow commissioners make well i think when we see a battery plant like sk innovations coming in that's going to have a significant impact that that my colleagues whether they're on the commission or broader speaking in the legislature republicans i'm speaking of that they're changing their mind about electric transportation and what's driving that well it's being driven Mm -hmm. by billions of dollars are being invested thing, right so yeah. uh, it, but it seems like that the pocketbook can impact any party whether you have two parties uh, or whether you have five uh, like it like in germany uh so uh, just a just another couple of seconds here in this uh in, in this segment i want to get into what you mentioned dr getty about this wyoming test plant that's being built. I want to talk about the Idaho National Lab and National Labs in general, because it does seem like 
all things being developed in nuclear energy is being developed at Idaho National Lab. And the impact that these that these labs have, their academic environment, the impact that the Savannah River site has had on the region. So stick around. We've got Dr. Orford, we've got Dr. Gaddy, and then we got KC and me. And we're having a great time learning and talking about energy, particularly nuclear energy. This is Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure you receive the highest quality solar energy system in the industry. They're proud to work with you before, during, and after the install, blending customer demand, system capability, and expertise to provide the best service possible. Contact them today at 770-485-7438 or creativesolarusa.com. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. Reducing pollution from the transportation industry is an important goal, and few alternative vehicle fuels offer the distinct advantages of compressed natural gas. I myself drive an F-150 C&G pickup. Marlin Compression, part of Marlin Gas Services, is helping to usher in this clean energy future to the Port of Savannah, too. Not only is Marlin Compression a trusted provider of CNG for fleet fueling, they are also working with Port Fueling Center on a state-of-the-art CNG truck fueling facility. Learn more about the distinct economic and environmental advantages of using natural gas for trucking fleets of all sizes and explore all of Marlin services by visiting marlincompression.com. That's marlincompression.com. Calculate your savings today. Hey, Tim Eccles back on Energy Matters. KC boys, we've got some brain power here today. We do indeed. This has been fun so far, and I think we got another two segments of learning about nuclear power and national labs and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so look, if you need a continuing education credit, you're going to get one with this show today. Uh, so because, grab another cup of coffee and sit down, right? Yeah, that, that's out. right. So in the studio with us, uh, two professors from the University of Georgia, uh, Dr. David Gaddy uh, in the engineering department he is an assistant professor uh no he's an associate professor uh, casey did you know there's a difference assistant versus associate so maybe we'll find out the difference but he's more importantly the senior fellow with the center for international trade and security and then dr adam orford he's in uh, uga law school where i would have liked to have gone i think my brother went there so one lawyer in the family i guess is enough Uh, but we're talking uh, energy policy we're talking nuclear energy uh and i want to start out uh, you know and, and talk about national labs i've had a chance to visit a couple of them uh, the one in uh in golden colorado the national renewable energy lab and then the savannah riverside so i had a chance to to visit out there with a doe official i know they've done a lot with battery even car battery research i mean dr orford these labs they do a lot of research they are uh, an incredible sort of uh national treasure as far as I'm concerned. They came out of the nuclear weapons development program. Uh, now they have a peaceful mission and have a lot of research association with large universities. That's where grant money comes from for big energy uh, programs and universities, for example, working with the labs. I had an opportunity to uh, meet a lot of folks at the Lawrence Berkeley lab at UC Berkeley, up the hill from UC Berkeley. Uh, and that's the relationship I had. Some of the smartest people I've ever met working up there. Wow. And Dr. Gaddy, you've been to a couple of these labs. Yeah, the Savannah River Lab here, Oak Ridge, and out in at the Idaho National Lab, which is where a lot of the nuclear, uh, advanced nuclear stuff is being developed. What drives the fact that something, a place like Idaho, can get all the projects do they do they decide that this this is what we're going for this is the brand we want to have uh and they're uh, they're writing grants how, how does that work you can probably chalk this up to a very good um senatorial and house of representatives representation in dc i know senator rish out in idaho 
and then right you know next to it or near it in Wyoming Senator Barrasso both have been champions of advanced nuclear so that space and ironically Tim uh, Idaho doesn't even have a nuclear reactor Uh, Wyoming doesn't have a nuclear reactor but they're in this area up there of uh, immense mining and Idaho just became a a, 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 a kind of a vortex of where this nuclear expertise uh, settled in so they've got good they have good representation Senators Rich and Barrasso like I pointed out are extremely good at communicating the value, the national security value and energy security of the nuclear resource. So the Berkeley Lab, Dr. Orford, uh, does it kind of reflect the the Bay Area population in terms of its projects, or is it driven by something else? I wouldn't say so. The, each of the labs seems to have developed its own personality. Berkeley, for example, works on a lot of uh, building and energy efficiency these days. They have a wide range of programs, uh, transportation, uh, lo- lots of things. Uh, Berkeley was and still is a, a place where you can get a nuclear engineering degree. So there's also some research in nuclear energy, not nearly to the same degree as some of the other labs. It's it's a it's a, a more engineering and academic oriented uh, space probably than the rest of the Bay Area. Casey, when I was at that NREL lab, they call it in Golden, Colorado, they were studying like the Sacramento, uh, we talked about SMUD. Yeah, and Sacramento. so they yep. were using as a case study uh, a neighborhood uh, at the end of a circuit where the builder put solar on every every home. And when clouds came over, everybody lost a power. All, all the lights blinked there. And mm. they, were, they were trying to figure out what had happened. Uh, and they got a fix for it. They actually put batteries in everybody's house in, wow, order, to, yeah. in order to fix it. But... The National Renewable Energy Lab was studying the issue so that they could help others not experience the same problem. They were doing, you know, uh, charger testing, battery testing. They had a number of different electric cars out there when I visited. So it seemed like, wow, this is such a great place to do research. And frankly, you know, in a state like Georgia, where we have been the tip of the spear for building two new nuclear reactors, I kind of feel like that, man, maybe we need to be maybe we need to be perfecting this technology at a national lab before we try to commercialize it. Yeah, well, and one of the reasons I'm really interested, uh, particularly to have Dr. Gaddy back on the show, is to talk about some of these new nuclear technologies. I mean, we, we've talked on the show before about the uh, the Vogel plants, and um, I won't get into my uh, concerns with that before. You can catch one of our back episodes, but I do think that there's a lot of promise around some of the new nuclear technologies that are being developed out of the labs and, and are kind of starting to get to the point where they're going to be commercialized and i think there is a potential um or at least i remain open to the potential perhaps dr gaddy can convince me uh that it'll address some of the issues that we've seen with some of the larger scale nuclear plants around cost around uh you know waste and and things like that so uh, really interested to hear and, and tim to your point having those labs as kind of applied research and and science is a huge asset. You know, it's not theoretical, it's solving real problems. Yeah, Dr. Gaddy, you mentioned Wyoming earlier and and the Idaho National Lab. Uh, What are are you seeing and what are we we to expect coming out of of the lab in particular and what's going to be built in Wyoming? So right now, and again, I just left, excuse me, I left the governor's business forum last week. I was invited to come out and um, give a presentation and chair a panel on Wyoming's nuclear future because back in the summer, Wyoming was identified as the location for the first advanced nuclear reactor in this country. It's the Natrium reactor. It's out of TerraPower. And and so while I was out there, they identified the site as Kimmerer, Idaho. As I walked in the door, they actually did that. But the point with that reactor, KC, to your point, they're smaller. This one is not characterized as small modular. It is still modular, but it's in the 400 megawatt range. So it's it's pretty big, yeah. But it's not characterized as small. Yeah. But the advantage, and Tim, this is something that you can appreciate, it's it's a sodium-cooled, it's still uranium pellets, it's enriched up to close to about 20%, but it's solid fuel pellets cooled by a sodium metal. That heat then is transferred into a molten salt loop that goes out into a tank and essentially sits there. That can take, I mean, that, that molten salt can take heat forever. Wow. But it's a thermal battery. So you're sitting there with that heat 
And you know what you can do with heat that's stored in a battery? You can, you can dispatch it when you want it. So they can it can actually dispatch to power generation, to hydrogen production, to industrial heat processes, whatever. They, so it gives nuclear dispatchability characteristics that weren't in the so, you know, so you're able to run the reactor at a constant rate which, which i understand that's a, an issue you can't really ramp reactions up and down very quickly but because you've got this thermal battery you've got the ability to kind of decouple running the reactor at a constant rate and what you're actually generating out of there perfect that's, kc that's exactly right you decouple the nuclear 24 7 that you want from this from the storage part that you really desire now but because all you need out of that is heat Really, really high heat. Mm-hmm. So That's what you're getting. Dr. Orford, <laughs> hey, you've lived in Alaska, Arizona, California, New York, now Georgia. Do you think something that's really different like this, this is a different type of technology, uh, maybe it needs to be characterized differently or called something differently, but do you see states that have kind of abandoned nuclear programs like California, like Vermont, like Massachusetts, do they have a chance to come back into the fold? Can they save face some way, or can they view it differently maybe than they did the old light water reactors? It's going to depend on politics. The politics are upstream of the decision-making. You are going to have state-level siting determinations that are going to be very contentious public proceedings. It's going to be incumbent upon the proponents of this technology to explain the differences that we just heard explained very clearly here uh, to the broader public, and then we're going to have to find out whether or not they accept those distinctions. You know, Elon Musk, uh, and, uh, his rocket program, his rocket-grade kerosene, all the different things he's, he's doing. I've seen people that follow him, and there's a lot of millennials that love him um, and follow him like a cult figure, but he's... He's doing a lot of things in in more the innovation and technology area, uh, and they're kind of defining it as that, and he's getting a lot of acceptance and a lot of love. I just wonder if someone like Elon Musk got behind this, Casey, if it would make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, what what he's done really well is made things like electric cars and and space travel sexy, right? Um, and and you know, it, when when it's sexy, and that's sort of a you know broad, non-specific term, right? But but it becomes compelling. It becomes something that people want to get behind, right? Before Tesla, electric cars were you know small, boring, slow. After Tesla, they're fast, exciting, and they're the future, right? So so yes, I do think that you know if you've got you know any technology being able to make it compelling is uh critically important um sorry to say i think nuclear is probably not the sexiest technology out there guys well when we come back we're going to talk about that because i I personally think sexy is overrated all right so we'll we'll get into that we're bringing sexy back is what you're saying yeah i I don't know that we are (laughs) (laughs) but uh, let's see let's see we're going to continue our discussion with dr gaddy dr orford about all things nuclear about the future of energy what things are going to look like down the road. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Hey, Tim Eccles here, host of Energy Matters. Solar's growing like crazy in Georgia, and I certainly say buyer beware. It's great to have companies like Creative Solar USA on the job. Russ, why do folks need to reach out to you? Tim, we're going on to our 14th year, and we have the best staff and most experienced installers in the state to get the job done right. You can find out more at creativesolarusa.com or call 770-485-7438. That's creativesolarusa.com. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at hallboothsmith.com. 
Hey, Tim Eccles back. One more segment with the Brainiacs here in the studio. I'm not talking about me, and I'm, I'm not talking about Casey. No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about Dr. Adam Orford and Dr. David Gaddy from the University of Georgia. And Dr. Orford teaches in the law school. Dr. Gaddy teaches over in the engineering school. Dr. Gaddy, you put the UGA engineering program up against Georgia Tech. You feel like we're getting closer. Have we surpassed them in some ways? It they're different. They're, they're just a little bit different in their, maybe in some of their undergraduate culture and things, Tim. it's Georgia Tech is a great school. I'll never argue anything other than that. They, they produce great graduates. We produce great graduates, too, and have longer than Georgia Tech has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a whole lot more UGA people get elected to political office than Georgia Tech yeah. people. And we're growing leaps yeah. and bounds. The college is doing exceptionally well. We're hiring great faculty we got great students and great research programs. We're, in, we're right where we want to be. Dr. Orford, you teach in the law school. You just finished up a class, Renewable Energy Law and Policy. I had a chance to come and speak to your students. I'm, I'm, I'm personally so glad that you're in the law school because I deal with a lot of activists, a lot of um, lawyers you know, that come before us and argue, and I feel like that getting people at an earlier age and giving them uh, you know, a broad education on this is just going to make them a better energy lawyer or environmental lawyer in the future. I happen to agree. And speaking actually of Georgia Tech, I hope that some of those students when they graduate undergraduate and think about law school, think about coming to the UGA Laws program because we're going to be helping them take what they've learned as engineering students and apply that as lawyers. Part of my teaching philosophy is that when you do legal work, you need to understand the technical basis of what you are talking about. Uh, if you don't, it becomes clear very quickly. So it's been important to me to, uh, to introduce students to this very uh, technical and somewhat uh, off at one corner of our society's sort of mind space area and show them how important it is and how exciting it is, how much is going on, how much money can be made working in this field, which is not irrelevant to students. All of that, I think, uh, will make this program, I hope, a success. Uh, Dr. Orford, you drive an electric car. Yep. I drive an electric car. Casey drives an electric car. Um, and <laughs> the there's, there's Toyota Tundra yeah, pickup. Yeah, there's, mm -hmm. there's a, a person here on the air that doesn't drive an electric car yet. But Dr. Orford, <laughs> your anecdotal experience driving that car, has it made you a better energy and environmental professor? Absolutely. Why? Because if I haven't experienced it, if I haven't been in the room or done the thing and understood what it is, I cannot teach it as well. Uh, I can explain it theoretically, I can read the book and explain what I read, but there's something for doing it, having the feel for it, going and visiting the site, going and talking to the people who are actually involved in it, whether it's the factory or the power plant or whatever, that you, you have to have in order to convey what is going on, in order to then explain what the policies, what the law uh, might be, how they might change. And one of the reasons I think you are such a catch for the law school is because you do have that Alaska DNA, uh, the Bay Area, Columbia, Arizona, and geography matters when it comes to energy. Politics matters. And you've lived in all those different places and seen how different agencies and governments and legislatures and, and citizens have all interacted around this energy and environment space. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I also lived in Portland, Oregon for five years. Uh, I think that, yes, seeing this broad range of structures that are built in order to manage and coordinate and govern right, this important part of our social system, of our technical social system, uh, has given me the, the, the ability to explain to students who might be ending up anywhere in the country uh, what the options are out there, what they might experience, what they might run into, and how to deal with it, whatever it is. Casey, even geography matters in the state of Georgia, right? Decatur handles things different than, say, Dalton. Or, Absolutely. Or different than Macon or different than Savannah. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think this is one of, I'm going to go really far afield here, but this is one of the, the beauties of the political system that we set up in this country, right, is the idea that, you know, Decatur's got different circumstances than Dalton, than Valdosta, than Americas, right? And so each community has the opportunity to make those political decisions to for what works for them, right? And so the things that we raise up 
to the higher levels like the state level or you know the federal level should be those things that you know really are kind of universal um and uh you know Plenty of people have have spent plenty of airtime arguing which way things should go, but th- there's a real beauty in how it's set up. And you can even look at individual citizens or individual companies in a particular area and the impact they make. Just take someone like Jimmy Carter, the former president, living in the Americas area and the enormous influence he has had on citizens, local politics there in that little small area of southwest Georgia. You look at a place like Atlanta with companies like Cox Enterprises uh, that has tremendous sustainability ambition and and performance and the influence that Cox that owns the Atlanta Journal-Constitution used to own the studio that we're in today that the influence that they've had and then you take other places like Savannah where you're down at the coast you've got the salt marsh you've got the water you've got the air and you have people that are you know, maybe more like Alaskans down there, Dr. Orford, who are out in the environment. And so they're they're more conscious of the fact when it's dirty. And and maybe maybe Alaskans are maybe a little more a, a little more perceptive to trash on the ground, junk in the water, nasty stuff floating around because you you're out there living in it. You know, it's a constant tension uh, between for example, uh, productive economic development and environmental protection. And I think, although I can't say that the state of Alaska does it perfectly, uh, the folks that are there are aware that both are important. I happen to agree. I think that folks in Georgia should feel the same way. I believe many of them do. You go down to the coast, it's pristine, it's beautiful. I'd like to see it stay that way as much as possible. Uh, And at the same time, you go down and you see that there are folks working at the ports, working in good paying jobs at uh, important industrial activities. I wanna see that happen as well. Yeah, look, I mean, Tim, we talk a lot about sustainability on this show, and I think your point, Dr. Orford, is, is absolutely worth doubling down on, right? Is that if we're talking about environmental sustainability and leaving a cleaner environment it's not going to work if it means that people live in poverty right like and and i don't think you know we're suggesting that but you've got to have an eye to both of those things to be able to say hey how do we do things in a more sustainable way that also includes economic development and for the opportunity people have livelihoods and support their families dr gaddy when you think about nuclear energy whether it's the plant vogel reactors that we're building or this technology in wyoming or some of the stuff being developed at the Idaho National Lab, what's it going to mean for the energy landscape over the next 50 years as these technologies are are developed, are, uh, as they're field tested, pilot tested, and then commercialized and put out in states across America? It is going to be the linchpin resource and technology for us to meet all of this this complex of objectives that we're trying to meet politically and environmentally and climate-wise, that is low carbon, economic development, more renewables, none of those things are going to happen simultaneously without baseload, reliable, zero carbon, advanced nuclear power. It will not happen without those things. In addition, it will allow us, I think at that point, which I would propose that we set a floor for fossil fuels that we don't go below. I really get concerned when we talk about decarbonizing our energy resources. I think we're going to need those down the road. So, Tim, I think it's the linchpin core technology that's going to facilitate us meeting all these complex of objectives that aren't going to be met with any other resource. Dr. Orford, as you talk with students, get their questions, uh, you know, in class, uh, you know, debate with them, you know, teach them th- the the energy of the future, uh, the, the the outlook that we have. What what do you see happening over the next fifty years with the kids that you're training one day becoming the leaders of the society? Well, I'm glad that we've identified something that Dr. Gaddy and I disagree on a little bit, which is the future of fossil fuels in our society. It's something that. If we are going to achieve our climate goals that are national goals and international goals, we are going to have to ramp down our reliance on fossil fuels to a much greater degree than I think people realize. Uh, And we're going to have to replace those resources with renewable energy resources. I think nuclear is part of the mix. Uh, I think 
though, that uh, that is going to require an enormous amount of money, and it's going to be something that requires a, a larger national investment than we have currently made. Um, I'm really, I would really love to talk more about this with David. We haven't talked about it in the past, but yeah, the, the future of fossil fuels, I think, is one of those things that students are very interested in trying to understand. Yeah, just a, a minute left in our show, Casey. We've got these two guys here that have their finger on the pulse of what's going on. Do you think that nuclear energy is going to be that perfect fuel of the future, or will it be hydrogen? Will it be something else? Uh, so I, I don't know that any one of them is going to be that perfect fuel, right? I mean, it's sort of the idea of a silver bullet, and there is not one. We're looking for silver buckshot here. Yeah. Well, uh, really great having you on the show today. Dr. Gaddy, how can folks reach you? Uh, my email address is dgattie, dgaddy, at uga.edu. And how, about, how about you, Dr. Orford? It's adam.orford at uga.edu. And Casey, how can folks reach you? You can find me on Twitter at Casey Boyce. And I'm at Tim Eccles, our show's at Matters Radio. Great having you guys on. I literally could just talk, you know, for show after show after show with you guys because you know a lot. Thank you, Dr. Gaddy. Thank you, Tim. I, Casey, I appreciate y'all having it. Yeah. Dr. Orford, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, you know, folks, energy matters, and we are really working to help educate you about what the future is going to look like, things to consider. So it's just a, a pleasure to be with these guys in studio. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Have a great weekend, everyone. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com. Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your one, two, or five dollar checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. When you shop O'Reilly Auto Parts, you'll get the parts you need when you need them. Shop O'ReillyAuto.com and choose same-day curbside, same-day pickup, or same-day delivery. Powered by DoorDash. Now available at participating stores in your area. Trust the professional parts people to get you the parts you need today. Visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.